Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who has a vast collection of vintage DC and Marvel comic books, and ironically lives in Minnesota, where his favorite NBA team, the LA Lakers, originated, Dave Denniston. Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, I have the honor of having a gentleman on the podcast today who's going to talk about something that I don't think we've ever talked about before, residential mortgage notes. So not houses, not residential houses, but residential mortgage notes. He is the founder. He is the principal of Aspen Funds, and they have purchased more than a thousand mortgage notes. And uh, certainly it's something that's a little different, something we've never talked about before. And I'm glad to have him on the show. Welcome to the show, Mr. Bob Frazier. Great to be here with you, Dave. Well, appreciate you, you being uh, here with me, sir. And, and why don't you just draw us a, a thumbnail sketch of, of your story and your journey and how you got to where you are now. Sure. Well, I actually was a uh, computer programmer from Berkeley, you know, kind of a, a high earner, but really not very financially adept, um, you know, maybe like a lot of your physicians, um, but uh, ended up doing a, a tech startup um, in the mid nineties and ended up becoming a real rocket ship uh, about, we raised about $44 million in venture capital and ended up hiring about 300 people. And this thing just really became this giant rocket ship. And, uh, and then we got caught in the tech wreck. So I, I got this, this amazing education in the world of venture capital and, and other people's money and financing and all that. And, uh, and from, from there, I became a CFO of a couple nonprofits and really helping them with their finances. We became a finance guy. And, um, and then about eight years ago, started Aspen Funds with my real estate genius partner, um, really to, in, to get into real estate. Because I, was, I, was, I also did a stint as a hedge fund manager in the stock market, which, uh, which was not very rewarding uh, mm. because, you know, the stock market is just so volatile as we've just discovered, you know, it's like who, who can, who can, you know, who can ride this roller coaster and feel good, you know? So, so ended up in this, in this real estate space and especially the, the real estate debt space, which is, you know, just, just less of a, uh, less of a, of a, uh, of a bucking Bronco and a lot more predictable and, and a lot more, you know, just, clear path to revenue and to income. So, so tell me a bit about, take us back to, to the tech boom and, and crash uh, afterwards. So I, I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on that now that we're going through the third financial crisis in, <laughs> in about 20 years. So um, during that time, you mentioned raising venture capital and what kind of business was this that you? It was a, it was a high tech business. It was, it was an internet business. So we, we did third party e-commerce for manufacturers. And uh, so you put everybody in the internet business and uh, we did it in a back office way. So it was a, it was a really a great idea. And um, sounds a lot like Amazon today. 
it that's definitely what it was it was pre-Amazon, and that's exactly what it was. And we would we would do the credit card processing, build the websites, uh, and run run this this internet business for uh, other companies, um, in, in exchange for a share of the revenue. And so we had twenty five hundred businesses that were customers, and uh, you know, really it was a cr- amazing rocket ship ride. We had about twenty percent month to month growth in revenue during a during a period there it just insanely you know high high growth business and we're getting ready for an ipo and all that and then uh and then the tech wreck happened so basically i was completely wiped out you know and uh like so many you know and and you know it does you know these these scars you know financial scars and having you know having gone through three crises now you know, it's really, it has informed this last decision I've made to go into real estate, into real estate debt, to something that it just is, doesn't have the same level of volatility that, uh, that these other areas do. So, so tell me about um, that business in terms of, certainly during that time, there were a lot of companies that weren't, weren't profitable. Was that a profitable company during the, the late 90s? Or? It, it could have been at any time. So when you're, when you're investing for that kind of growth, the, the way the venture capital guys work is they basically ramp, they give you a lot of money, they take you to the, to the trough and they fill the trough you know, full and then they, they get you to feed and, and just hire like crazy, build out your new revenue line. So, so they also ramp your burn rate up massively. It's their strategy because at the end of the day, they're not trying to build a profitable business. They're, they're, they're trying to build, they're trying to take market share. You know, the idea is the way the venture capital works is they're not looking for a 2x deal or a 3x deal. They're looking for a 100x deal. So one of the, the, the guy who, who VC'd me was actually the, the, one of the very first venture capitalists with a company called Savin Rosen and was the first investor in Lotus, Citrix, Cyrix, Sienna. And he, he said basically they, they plan on only one in 18 deals making it. Mm-hmm. And that's enough to get 100% returns. You know, you get the, you get the idea. So they're, they're focusing on the moonshot. So they basically turn you into a moonshot. It's either moonshot or, or flame out. And, um, you know, so, so he, it's, it's a kind of a bizarre model, not, not definitely for the, for the normal type people. You know? If you reflect back on that time, you know, for someone that maybe owns their own practice or whatever, I think there, there's more of these opportunities that will come about to physicians. So I'm curious to know, uh, whether it's a hospital buying someone out or a venture capital firm or, or private equity or whatever, do you think you would take, if you were to do it over again, would you take that, that VC money? I mean, you have to get capital somewhere to grow a company. You know, how would you do it differently if you were to do it over now, you if know, at all? That is such a great question and probably a week's worth of podcasts on, on the lessons learned. And, and at the time, I didn't have any alternatives. Um, so it, it, it was, it was a good answer, but they, they are some of the smartest people around and basically they, they really, I got an education to be honest. Um, so it was, it was good for me personally, not good for my investors ultimately, or for my business ultimately. Mm -hmm. Um, but I became a different guy having done that and, you know, with a different level of education, understanding finance and understanding growth and understanding growth metrics and, and scale metrics and all these different things that I just, I really learned how to scale businesses. I learned how to do those things. So I became, I became a, a more, just a more skilled person, but it 
at great cost. So I would probably do it again, especially given that I didn't have any, any alternative. But it's definitely a question if you're considering that. I know, you know, if you built a, a practice as a, as a businessman and you know, a doc and you've built this thing and, you know, you want to really think about what you're doing and, uh, and who you're partnering with. Because what actually happened, the reason I lost the business is because I lost control of the board mm. at the last round of financing. When you, when you bring in this kind of financing, you, you basically give up a board seat every time you do a round of financing. And what happened is I lost, I, I lost control of the board at the exact same time the tech rack hit. Basically, it was like a month before. Mm. And so I, didn't, I lost all my options, ability to turn this into a profitable business and ride out the storm. I didn't have that option anymore. Um, and so, so you definitely want to think about that. You want to think about those control issues. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't know a lot of places for people to turn for that level of advice. It's really senior CFO level advice. But find some people who have done some business buyouts and have been a part of that from a receiving end and talk to them about, about the options and pluses and minuses. Because it's, it's, not all a, it's not all a gravy train, you know. On the other hand, it's good to cash out sometimes. You know, and there's nothing wrong with putting some cash in your pocket and living another day. Right. So, mm. so there's, there's no easy answer. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Interesting. Well, I would love to um, talk a bit about kind of what, what you're doing now with, with um, Aspen Fund. So tell us a bit about these residential mortgage notes. What are those? What is that? Well, so you own a house and, uh, you really, you and the bank own your house, right? And you make mortgage payments to your bank. Um, so that's exactly what we are. We become your bank. So we buy these notes. Only we buy we buy notes that that have a little bit of a little bit of you know it's called they're called troubled debt restructures. Or for other reasons, the the traditional financial institutions won't buy these. They don't look at these as good, but they are really really good. And so we buy them at discounts. So we'll buy, for example, there's a $100,000 house in upstate New York. The guy owes $100,000 on, on his loan. It's a 7% interest rate loan. And we bought that for $50,000. Well, so he pays you know, $579 a month to us. And uh, you know, it ends up being a 7% return, but it's actually because we didn't pay $100,000 for this $100,000, we only paid 50 grand for it. So it ends up being a 14% return for us. You follow? And, yep. and, and, and so we get super high yields. And then the other thing is, well, let's say he sells that house and he gets a new lender or you know, the buyer gets a lender and the, that lender pays off our loan. We don't get paid off $50,000. We get paid off $100,000. So we make a $50,000 profit. So the idea is you earn a 14% return until you earn a 100% exit. It sounds too good to be true, um, but you know, that's a true note. That's a real note that we really own. And uh, so we, we basically buy thousands and thousands of these notes. We stick them in a portfolio and we just collect the money um, as, as a lien lord. So um, I'm sure you've, you've probably gone over this in other podcasts, but I'll ask you to <laughs> reiterate it here. So I think about 2008 and 2009, I think about something like The Big Short and what, what that movie and book um, talk about. And certainly 
slicing and dicing mortgages as, as what it sounds like here, right? You have kind of top grade stuff. If you're using the different investment grades, you have triple A, the best possible people. You have double A, single A, triple B, double B, single B, and so on. And dub, double B and below is all the negative bad stuff, if you will. The junk, the high yield, um, which you can certainly earn a lot more, but then there's a lot bigger chance of default. Is that kind of what right. I'm understanding here? You're more in that kind of double well, B and below. Well, the issue that they had, and and you know, you're you're super financially adept, so you understand this. What they did is they took the pool of notes, and they basically divided it up not by note, but basically the first, you know, the the, the the, the double B tranche, whatever it was, the lowest tranche would be the first, any losses in all that portfolio, they would take all of those losses. So, so it was an amplification effect far beyond what should have been. And so, so really it was a faulty model and faulty underwriting. You know, so no, this is not at all what we do. We, we, we buy those notes and, and I'll say this, there's no such thing as a bad note. There's just a bad price. So, you know, let's, let's go over this this New York house again. So how am I going to get creamed on that house? See, I actually own the lien on that house. If he doesn't pay me, I, I, I don't own a, a, a chunk of a bond that's guaranteed by somebody with counterparty risk. I don't own that. I own that note. I'm his bank. So he doesn't pay me. I go take that house. Now it's not something I want to do, but if I have to, I will. And, and if I take that house and let's say the housing price has crashed, by 35%. So that's not a $100,000 house. It's a $65,000 house now. But I'm still only into it at 50 grand. You follow me? Mm -hmm. So, so the, the truth is, I'm just not going to lose money on, on this, on this, on this, these kind of investments, you know, and we, we don't. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, you look at, the, you know, everybody, having gone through three crises, everybody looks at the next crisis as if it were the last one. They, they, they look through the lens of the last crisis. This crisis is not anything like the last one, you know, and it's not like any, anything like the one before that, which was the dot-com crisis. They're completely different. And so we're actually seeing, and I've actually done an economic, uh, you know, a few economic newsletters during this period and, and have basically said, it looks like housing is gonna continue to be strong throughout this crisis, and in fact it has. So it's showing to be nothing like the previous crisis. I would hate to be a retail investor right now, retail real estate, you know, or hospitality real estate or entertainment real sure, estate. Sure. But, but homes actually are quite resilient right now. So, so you know. well, I, I get back to, I mean, there's a reason why you bought it at a discount, right? Like this person probably is behind on their bills already. You know, if you're buying something at a 50% discount, there's a reason why right. that is being discounted so heavily. Absolutely. And that's right. This is, this is distressed debt. We're, we're by primarily troubled debt restructures. And what these are is people who had a problem and now they're back on track. So, but once troubled debt restructure, always troubled debt restructure. So you can go to the FDIC website and look for any bank and it'll tell you how many troubled debt restructures they have. And it never becomes a good loan again. And, but because someone had lost a job and had a financial crisis or they had a divorce or a medical crisis doesn't mean they're a, they're a bad bet. And at the end of the day, we, you know, there's two underwriting criteria. There's the borrower, but there's also the property. Mm -hmm. And so even if the borrower has, has poor credit history, but there's a lot of equity in that property, we'll, we'll buy that loan. 
because we understand what it takes. You know, we're actually a default the debt shop. We understand, we're actually experts in managing defaults. And we have a staff, fully staffed up to do that. So we're not afraid of that at all. Where most banks, when there's a, when there's a default, they really don't quite know what to do with this. So, so we, are, we are set up to handle it. And, and our, we actually underwrite these to a 30% default rate, meaning that we still make money and will still fully perform on our expect, investor expectations if we have a, experience a 30% default rate. And we're, we're nothing even close to that right now. We're, 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 we're around 5% default rate. Um, so, you know, which is, which is high compared to the, you know, traditional mortgage markets. So it's, I definitely could see the opportunity. Um, tell me about, certainly we're recording this in June. I believe this podcast is going to come out late July, early August, something like that. And so it's, it's been three and a half months really since things really started trickling down and probably just three months since people started losing jobs and really becoming financially hairy. I have to imagine on one end, there's probably more um, active notes that are defaulting. On the other hand, I have to imagine there's a larger supply of now things to choose from. Is that the case or no? Maybe it hasn't hit yet. What's, what's you know, happening? You know, I, you know and, I, and I don't have an answer yet for why it hasn't hit, but you know, we're, we've seen a teeny tiny, the smallest of upticks in our defaults. And it, I really expected a lot more. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly. I've really not being able to figure out why why we're not seeing this, um, although a lot of our colleagues and mobile homes and others, it's the same thing that we're seeing. We're seeing residential real estate, single family, you know, or residential real estate not being hit very much. Maybe it's because of the unemployment benefits um, mm-hmm. or the the stimulus. I'm not really sure, but it, it really hasn't hit. So we're 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 actually breaking records every month right now in our revenues and our income. So, huh. you know, I'm hoping that continues, you know, having gone through three crises, it, it teaches you, you know, some humility, you know, you don't, you don't know what's coming, but, but, um, you know, it, it looks, it looks pretty, pretty good right, right now. And, and being home sweet home, it's different, right? We, we, we only lend to, well, not exclusively, but 90, 99% to owner occupied homes and so so the idea is you know if you're if you're underwater in your home you don't just call your banker and give the keys back you know this is this is where your kids go to school this is where you work you know so it's different than investor properties like uh you know uh, you know first lien investing that a lot of a lot of these companies do so you know we're these are these people have a lot of stake in this home so we really haven't seen a, a lot of impact yet and um and cautiously optimistic so tell me about with um, the ones that do default and now, now you own the house. Um, what, um, what are the, or what are the costs of going through that? that uh, and I'm sure it differs from county to county, state to state, um, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But in general, if you use that same example, you buy a note for 50K, houses hypothetically worth 100,000. What is the cost to foreclose and, and own it? And how long does that take? And, and I'll, I'll answer that, but first I'll answer a little a little myth. I mean, you know, so we we own right now in, in our in our income fund about 500 notes. We've been running it for seven years. Um, I I think we've had three three properties that we have taken in that period. 
three total. And so it's even when someone stops paying, it doesn't mean we take their house. Almost always they will catch back up. Almost always. They, you know, they, you know, uh, rob the 401k or find a friend or mom and dad or, or they'll short sell or something, but there's always an, an option. So it, it, the idea that you're going to end up with a house is just wrong. What you do end up with is conversation where you're, where you're, you're dealing with a, a you know, a non-payer. But again, that's not that, not that common. Now, let's say you do have to foreclose. Well, it isn't, you know, it's, it takes anywhere from six months to, you know, three or four years, depending on the state you're in. It's different by, by state, but at the end of the day, it costs a few grand in attorney fees. And, um, you know, it's, it's nothing, it's nothing that you as a physician would, you know, would want to deal with really, you, you know, definitely you want to go with someone who manages that those kind of things. But even if you have to manage it yourself, it's really not the end of the world. I mean, attorneys generally handle it. You hire an attorney and they, they run the whole thing for you. Run the whole thing. Sure. Huh. And so like how, how often, you know, let's say if someone was going to be on time on payments, right. A lot of these people are, are under pressure. They, they might fall back. You know, what's, what's kind of the accounts receivable, you know, like, are you usually a month or two out? You know, how, how many people are late on payments? You know, you know, of course it depends on your portfolio quality, you know, so we, sure. we have a fair amount of, we probably have, you know, I'll say 10, 15% of our notes are not, not current at any time, but a lot of those are, then they're, then they're catching up. So the ones that aren't paying are, are compensated by the ones that actually were behind three months ago and caught up this time, you know, and so we have a crew that makes the phone calls and, and they, they know, people know that if they don't pay this, they're going to lose their house and no one wants to lose their house. So generally, you know, we're pretty high priority. So, uh, so it's, it's not that, it's not that much. It's not that much. Interesting. And in those cases where the rare case that you have taken the house, what do you, what's your exit strategy there? Do you just sell it to a wholesaler? Do you yeah. take a, take a, a real estate agent? You know, what's the model there? We've, we've done both. We've, we've done, you know, rehab it, you know, find a, you know, find a, there's local, there's companies that you can hire that'll, that'll uh, rehab it for you even remotely. And we've actually done remote rehabs and, uh, and flip it or just sell it to a wholesaler. Um, so there's, you know, there's a pretty well-developed market out there. Of, of vendors and service providers for those kind of things. So there's a, you know, a lot of, lot of choices. Okay. Awesome. Well, we, we've covered a lot, a lot of kind of number oriented stuff for, for folks. What, what's something that I haven't asked you yet that you think would be good to cover or, or go over when someone's considering this kind of thing? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think given the recent stock market vol- volatility, you know, one of the things, one of the things, you know, our, our income fund, you know, we're, we're paying eight and a half and nine, 9% yields on a monthly basis, cash flow basis, um, you know, annual basis, but literally paid monthly. And, you know, in today's, today's world, you know, it's, it's super challenging. We have a number of docs that, you know, we're the, we're kind of a centerpiece of their retirement. And, um, um, today's today's market i just looked at some of these some of these in income stocks um you know eqr equity real estate or the mlp funds these things have had one two three four five six 
six drawdowns of 75%, as, as high as 75%, six drawdowns of 20% or more in the last, just since 2000. And, and, the, and the problem with volatility, as you know, is that it destroys compounding. So this is, this is where people don't realize that what an enemy of compounding and wealth building volatility is. So if you earn, you know, 50% return one year and minus 30% the next year and 50% the next and minus 30 the next year, average a 10% return, but ends up being a really lousy return over a 30 year period or whatever your, your investor time frame is. So volatility is, is, is a problem. And, uh, and so, you know, I definitely think real estate is a, is a, you know, uh, if you get, especially if you get, you know, get on the debt side, which is less volatile, um, that it's uh, definitely a, can be a, a real good strategy for a, a part of your portfolio. Well, I, I do agree with that to, to a, a certain, certain amount. Um, certainly you can't have, it's like a bond, right? Is essentially what you have. So bonds are, are meant to be less volatile. The, um, the main issue I have when someone brings up something like this is that there's with real estate investing, whether you're doing something like the notes that you have or uh, whatever, the, the flip side of the coin is a, a lack of liquidity. You know, you can't just liquidate your whole investment and walk away tomorrow from it because someone like yourself is managing it and you're relying on XYZ cash flow to keep, keep the thing going. There might be some, some investor redemption programs, but we've seen with other programs before that those can get taken away. Um, right. So while there's the benefit of a higher yield and um, whatever you ha you're losing the lack of liquidity, which is why things are volatile, right? You have liquidity. So it's going up and down uh -huh. because there's yeah. all the, the, the fear and the hope and all that stuff that comes along with it. So. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But, but, you know, I'm looking at some, you know, stock market right now, you've got some pretty interesting companies selling at a fraction of book value. I mean, it, the market is, is pretty much insane. The stock market, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's not really, you know, there's a lot of things that go on sale when they shouldn't be on sale. And, you know, um, you know, it's, you know, which is what led me to really say, I want to be done with the stock market. I want to do something that I have a little more control over. You know, and, and I, I, I totally agree. Although I will say, you know, so our, our portfolio of 500 notes, well, we have about 8% of those notes that actually self-liquidate every year, right? Sure. So sure. as, a, as, a, as a, a borrower sells that home or refinances, and well, that ends up being a pretty, pretty enormous amount of liquidity. Now, is it, you know, if everybody wanted all their money at one time, you know, obviously we couldn't do that. Sure. But besides that, the notes themselves are liquid if we, if we had to. But, but what happens, we allow investors, and of course, we actually price our, our, our fund based on net asset value per, per unit, per share. Every quarter, we allow investors out. We've, in eight years, we've never, never failed to meet a redemption request. That's not, there's no guarantees, obviously, nope. you know, that that would be possible, you know, but, but it certainly has worked so far. And, uh, you know, but I, I agree with you and you know there's there's a price to pay right there's you know there's always something you give up for for that uh those those high yields but you know um you know we've done something here that's you know struck a nice balance you know we hope absolutely absolutely i'm, I'm probably a little different than than some other people were where i like a mix of it all give me give me everything i'll take some of this and i'll take some of that that's and, well that's that's exactly right that's exactly right 
So any, any other closing thoughts, my friend, you know, as we uh, close down any, any resources you think might be good to share with people, you know, things maybe have influenced you that uh, whether it's courses or, or books or something that if someone is, is interested should read more to, to learn more about this subject. Well, you know, the old standby I made all my kids read was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You, you know about that. I, I think you get a lot of your, you know, your, your folks, I'm sure, thinking about cash flowing. And, and you know, um, I, I, I think, honestly, I was looking through some of the shows that you guys have done, and, and it looks like a pretty amazing educational platform. And I, I really think, you know, I, I, you know, most of the docs, most of the, most of the docs and professionals I know, they've spent an enormous amount of energy and money investing in their career to, to basically become high earners, but, but, the, but they really have spent really underinvested in their financial education. Um, and, and you, so you earn millions and millions of dollars over your career, but then really are, find yourself not able to, to, you know, manage that or know what to do after the fact. So I, I would encourage people to, to get a few, a few books and, and, um, you know, you know, uh, and really educate themselves, whether it is the stock market and, and uh, you know, how to invest there or, or real estate investing with a rich dad, poor dad. Um, and there's a few other things I would, I would suggest about entrepreneurialism and basically building other streams of, of income, you know, uh, like, uh, uh, oh, what's that? Uh, uh, the one about entrepreneurialism, gosh, it escapes my brain right now. The E-Myth? That's it. That's it. The E-Myth, you know, great, great book. Um, you know, so, so, so many good, so many good resources out there. I would encourage people to partake of, you know, your shows. Well, thank you. Appreciate that, sir. And if people want to find more about you or what you guys do, what's the best way for them to do that? Aspen, like the tree, F-U-N-D-S, aspenfunds.us, dot U-S. Aspenfunds.us. All right, Bob, well, any closing thoughts, sir, before we wrap this up? Well, just, uh, you know, is this time uh, is, you know, we're in the middle of this uh, virus crisis. Just wish everyone the best and uh, happy investing. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you, sir, so much for being with us. Some really good things to think about a different kind of asset class we haven't ever had on the podcast before. So everyone check it out at aspenfunds.us and ask lots of questions and and, um, certainly do your homework to make your own informed decisions. For the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, this is Dave Denniston. Remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle.